Good evening. Uh, tonight's reading is from Daniel chapter 7, and you'll be able to find this on page 745. So it's Daniel chapter 7 on page 745, and verses 13 and 14. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days, and he was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. This evening's second reading is from Revelation chapter 1, which you'll find on page 1028. So that's Revelation chapter 1 and verses 12 to 20. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash round his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and in his face, and his face was like the, shine, the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write therefore the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, and the seven stars, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Thank you, Laura, and thank you, Johnny, and thank you very much to our musicians. We love that song, and I'm sure we'll be singing it many times hence. Now, on Sunday nights, we are looking at the book of Daniel. We're pressing a pause tonight to look at a couple of verses in chapter 7. And if you are here for the first time, and perhaps you're here off the back of the events week, um, this is a great Sunday to uh, come on as we consider uh, who Jesus is. But let me pray that God will speak to us from his word. Our Father, we thank you for the book of Daniel. We thank you for uh, these powerful visions. We pray that you would help us understand them, to understand the heart of them, and not to get distracted by what is peripheral. We want to see what is central, And Lord, as we pray for understanding, we pray too for obedience to respond appropriately. Help our reaction to be the reaction 
that is in the Word of God. And we pray that you would give us concentration. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Now, there are some notes on the back of the service sheet that may help us tonight as we embrace what is uh, not a small topic, but a wonderful one in its richness. Who is Jesus? An important answer to that question, Jesus is the Son of Man. The title Son of Man is used of Jesus in the four Gospels on 51 separate occasions. That is not counting parallel passages. In other words, the title Son of Man is used of Jesus on 51 separate occasions. Here's a surprising fact. In the Gospels, only one person refers to Jesus as the Son of Man. And that person is Jesus himself. Son of Man is the most common title Jesus uses of himself. One can presume, therefore, that in Jesus' mind and heart, Son of Man gets to the very essence of who he is. And when Jesus used the title Son of Man as often as he did, he had in his mind the promise here in Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 to 14. These verses that Laura read are foundational verses in the Bible. Let's read them again. Follow with me. Daniel 7, 13, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Jesus is saying that he is this Son of Man in Daniel's vision. Now let's consider first in detail these foundational verses in Daniel, and a bit of context will be helpful. The book of Daniel is about power. It's about who has ultimate authority and power in the world and in all of history. It's about who rules. And the book of Daniel, like apocalyptic literature, takes away the veil, takes away what it looks like or feels like to what it's actually like. It's about power. It was written by Daniel in the 6th century BC, who lived at the very heart of the superpower of Babylon. It was written in the 6th century BC, hundreds of years before the coming of Jesus. Jesus refers to Daniel as a prophet, and as God's prophet, Daniel received a series of visions about events that will happen in the future, Daniel's future. Now, the first vision Daniel received is recorded in chapter 7, from which Laura read. And chapter 7 is the central chapter in the book. 
And Daniel 7 is not just the central chapter in the book of Daniel. It is one of the central chapters in the Bible as a whole. Now, last week we looked at the chapter as a whole and noted the following, that it is a prophecy, that's the whole of Daniel 7, about the coming kingdom of God. Now, if the message of the book of Daniel is that God rules, that is expressed supremely in God's promise that in contrast to earthly or human or worldly kingdoms and kings that rise and fall, and we know that's true as we survey history, God, and remember when Daniel wrote this was a prophecy about the future, God will establish a universal, a global, and an everlasting kingdom under the rule of His all-powerful and forever King. That's uh, the heartbeat of Daniel 7 as a prophecy. It is a prophecy about the coming kingdom of God, and related to that, it is a prophecy about the defeat of evil. The terrifying beast described in the chapter representing human fallen power intent on opposing God and His people. All of that will be defeated and swept away. The dominion of Satan, the prince of this world, shall be taken away to be consumed and destroyed to the end. That's it, language from later in Daniel 7. So the whole of chapter 7, its heart is a prophecy about the coming kingdom of God, universal and everlasting. It is a prophecy about the defeat of evil. And third, it is a prophecy, the whole chapter, about the people of God referred to in the vision as the saints inheriting the kingdom. If you're a Christian, this is a prophecy about you. Let me read a couple of verses from later in the chapter. And the kingdom and the dominion, that's the universal and everlasting kingdom that God will bring about in the person of His King, and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to you, to the people of the saints of the Most High, to you, their kingdom, your kingdom, shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey you. That's what it says. It's astonishing. Now, at the heart of this vision is, and I'm quoting from the text, one like a son of man. Daniel 7, this central chapter in the book of Daniel, an important chapter in the whole of the Bible, this prophecy about the coming kingdom of God, about the defeat of evil, and about the saints inheriting the kingdom, has at its heart one like a son of man. Now, let me highlight three things about verses 13 and 14. First, it is a description of a coronation. Today marks the 70th anniversary of the Queen's accession to the throne in 1952. She was crowned in Westminster Abbey a year later in 1953, 
That was a magnificent occasion watched by millions of people. And what is described here in Daniel 7 is a coronation. The coronation of a king. Behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and kingdom. That reads like, and it's meant to read like a coronation. The Ancient of Days is the eternal God. The clouds of heaven signify that this is a divine event of immense significance. We know from a few verses earlier, it is watched by a vast multitude. A thousand thousands serve the Ancient of Days, and 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. That is so vast that we cannot comprehend it. It is a scene like we have never seen. It is beyond our comprehension in its glory, in its power, in its majesty. Now notice the direction of travel. The Son of Man is coming with the clouds of heaven to the Ancient of Days. Now we know from the New Testament that Jesus is the Son of Man, and a number of passages in the New Testament speak about Jesus coming on the clouds of heaven. But in these New Testament passages, the direction of travel is different. He is coming from God, from heaven. And the passages that refer to the coming of the Son of Man on the clouds from heaven are referring to Jesus' return at the end of the church age, beyond our time, when he will establish the new creation. But here in Daniel 7, the Son of Man is coming to God, into heaven, to be crowned as God's King. And if it sounds like the same language that describes his return from heaven, so it should. It's the same King, it's the same God, it's the same glory. Now, when was this prophecy in Daniel 7, 13 and 14 fulfilled in history? We can give a precise answer. After Jesus' death and resurrection, when he ascended into heaven. We live after that event. Jesus came to earth, his first coming. He lived, he died, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and was crowned as God's King. Now, the second thing to highlight in these verses is that God entrusts to this figure one like a son of man. God, now we mustn't miss this, be easy for us to, God entrusts to another his eternal rule. To him was given dominion and glory in his kingdom. God said, have it all, rule it all, be my ambassador, my representative. Now, what is the significance 
of the fact that God entrusts to him rule of his universal and everlasting kingdom. The significance is the central importance of this figure, one like a son of man that we know to be Jesus in all of human history. He is God's king, and it is to him and him alone. No other pretenders. The dominion, glory, and kingdom is given. It is God's ordained will that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. Salvation is centered in Jesus Christ and in him alone. It is Jesus we must look to for salvation. It is Jesus we must serve as Lord. There is no other like him. There is no other name by which people can be saved. Now let me pause there. If you are not a Christian or new to Christian faith, that kind of statement, and God is making the statement through this vision about his son of man, his king, that kind of statement runs hard against the zeitgeist or spirit of our age. Surely there cannot be one way. Let me say this to you. Do not listen to people like me or people who speak at events week or people who read the Bible with you. They are simply under that word as you are. Listen to God in his word. And if God needs us to come to terms with the fact that there is one king to whom he has entrusted all things as humans, under God we need to come to terms with that. And when you do, it does not make you arrogant. It is an enormous relief to know that there is an answer to be found in one person. The route back to God, the way of salvation, is not complex. It is simple. The third thing I want to highlight from these verses in Daniel 7 before we turn to the New Testament, is the title Son of Man. Why is this figure in Daniel's vision that we know to be Jesus referred to as one like a Son of Man? What exactly does this mean? Now, you may have heard it said that the title Son of God refers to Jesus' divinity, that he is fully God, while Son of Man refers to his humanity. And there is truth in that. But the title Son of Man embodies so much more than simply a reference to Jesus' humanity. For Daniel 7, where this human figure is at the heart of, is a magnificent picture of triumphant glory. A picture of the Son of Man going to God and His throne and receiving His kingdom and power. This is a special man. Here's a description I found helpful. Here is the true man, the real man, 
Not just man in the generic sense, but man as he was created to be, and man as he has fulfilled the destiny God gave him. Now, God created Adam, the first human. God created Adam in his image, which means to reflect his likeness and to fulfill his mandate to rule the earth, to rule over the kingdoms of the earth, if, as it were. Humanity rejected God and came under his judgment. But now, at this critical point in history, the God of heaven breaks into the mind of his prophet Daniel. And Daniel writes this down for the edification of hundreds, thousands, millions of people through history. But now God has appointed one like a son of man. To be a man as God created humanity to be. In other words, a son of man who will reflect the image of God perfectly and fulfill the mandate of God to rule over God's earth. And that is why Jesus is referred to in the New Testament as the second Adam and the last man. As the second Adam. Jesus is not merely human. He embodies all that humanity was purposed to be, reflecting God's image and fulfilling his mandate to rule, and as we'll see in a moment, in order to redeem humanity. Now, just before we leave Daniel and think about how Son of Man is used in the New Testament, one more thing to note about this foundational prophecy. This passage in Daniel, Jesus has in mind when he identifies himself as the Son of Man. Now, the prophet Daniel received this vision in the 6th century BC. Now, that blows our minds as we get to glimpse the mind of God two and a half millennia ago, the purposes of God to send a second Adam to redeem humanity, long purposed in the mind of God, in the heart of God, in the mercy and kindness of God. And you get a glimpse in that of the, the eternal goodness and graciousness and faithfulness of God. And does it not also give us confidence in the Word of God? God gave Daniel this vision. Daniel wrote it down. These promises are fulfilled in Jesus. We can trust God's Word as we see these promises fulfilled, as we see the consistency and coherence of the Word of God. You might be new to Christian faith or investigating it, and Christians have told you that the Bible is the Word of God, that God inspired it through human authors. That's hard to understand until you look at it. And these ancient texts, have prophecies about the coming of a Son of Man who is crowned. Jesus says, that's me. 
And these prophecies were given by God to his people hundreds of years before Jesus came. Confidence in the trustworthiness of God's word. Now, let's think a little bit on how Son of Man is used in the New Testament. Now, as I've said more than any other title, it is the way Jesus refers to himself. But in these 50 plus separate uses of the title, and from its use elsewhere in the New Testament, are there any themes? Well, there are. I'm going to suggest there are four ways, or four main ways, Son of Man is used in the New Testament of Jesus. Much of it is Jesus speaking about himself, but what about him? Four themes. And all we can do is kind of nimbly step on these as stepping stones through salvation history. First, the Son of Man is associated with Jesus' first coming and his revelation and proclamation of God's kingdom. For example, early on in Jesus' ministry, when he heals a paralyzed man to show that he has authority on earth to forgive sins, Jesus does not use the title Son of God. This is in all four Gospels. Jesus does not say, so that you may know that the Son of God has authority on earth to forgive sins. Get up and walk. We might have expected him to say that, but he doesn't. He says, but that you may know that the Son of Man... And the religious leaders in the corner, their minds would have gone, Daniel 7, what's he claiming? And their minds might have gone out of Daniel 7 to the servant songs and to the coronation psalm, Psalm 2, you are my son, or to 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, and Jesus is claiming all these things. And that hint in saying, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins is a hint that it will take a second Adam to forgive our sins. Second, the title Son of Man is associated with Jesus' suffering and death to open the door to God's kingdom. Now, that is the dominant use of the title in the Gospels. When Jesus speaks about his suffering and death, he repeatedly uses Son of Man. And it's all over the Gospels. And you expect him to say, Son of God, Son of God going to the cross, the divine Son of God, the eternal Son of God going to the cross as a human in order to pay the price of sin. And that is true. But it's the second Adam that goes to the cross. The second Adam and the last man. the last man, because he died and was raised, and there is no need for any human being to die into judgment anymore because he is raised. That's why he says, let me read to you from Mark, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things. And we let these words go over our heads. 
because we don't really know why it's not Son of God, but it's so vital that it's Son of Man. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. Then again in, in Mark 10, three times. And then the key verse in Mark's Gospel that Johnny read, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So think of Jesus as fully God, the eternal Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. Think of Jesus as fully human, flesh and blood, sinews and muscles. And think of Jesus as the second Adam, the last man. Now, there are many more uses of the title Son of Man in the Gospels associated with Jesus' suffering and death. Why? Well, because I've already said this, the only way humanity could be forgiven and reconciled to God, the only way that the door could be opened into God's kingdom was for the Son of Man, the second Adam. See, it's not just a divine person and a human person that is, if you like, a, a forensic, perfect sacrifice for sin. If you explain the gospel as divinity and humanity on a cross to save us, that sounds like a forensic formula. What's on the cross is a man who perfectly reflected the image of God in humanity and fulfilled in his life the mandate given by God to humanity to rule over the earth. That man took our place and atoned for our sin, the perfect sacrifice for sin. And you see, because Jesus went to the cross as the Son of Man, the second Adam, it means that you and I are not just forgiven. You and I are, we are sons of God. We are recreated humans. Once more, we begin to and will perfectly reflect the image of God. Once more, we are beginning to… What is a church for? A church is to responsibly rule over God's earth, rule over God's world, to show a different community. Jesus took our place and atoned for our sin. And then third… And gloriously, the title Son of Man is associated with Jesus' resurrection, ascension, coronation, and reign. If only in this cold, cold building, if only we could see into heaven and see Jesus reigning. If only we could see Him. If only we could see Him at the beginning of the 21st century in this part of the world where hardly anyone looks for Him. Well, I think we can do just that. In the company of the Apostle John and the vision of the reigning Jesus that Laura read described as one like a son of man, John's vision of the reigning Jesus is a vision given to him at the beginning of the church age. And Jesus Christ tonight is a perfect. He is exactly as that vision is. He's exactly like that tonight. 
at the right hand of God. Well, you cannot describe him. So apocalyptic literature does it best. Let's read Revelation 1. Revelation 1 and verse 12, I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And of course, it is Jesus Christ who speaks to us through His Word. It is Jesus who leads the church. On a turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. They symbolized the church, and in the midst of the lampstands was one like a son of man. It's the same person. It's the same person that became less than human. What does Isaiah 52 describe him as? Disfigured such that he was less than the image of God and the rest of humanity who are unsaved. crushed. He was crushed in order to crush Satan. In the midst of the lampstands was one like a son of man. He's not crushed now, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like white wool like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. I'm not going to try and give you some kind of pathetic contemporary illustration. I think it just speaks for itself. His voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, which is the Word of God. Out of his mouth the words of Jesus, his face was like sun shining in its full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me saying, do not be afraid. And finally, the Son of Man in the New Testament is associated with Jesus' second coming to bring in the new creation. That's the bit we all know really well, but the Son of Man, as we have seen, is much more than that. Here's one example from Mark 13. In those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heaven will be shaken, and then they, all humanity, will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory, not into the presence of the Ancient of Days, but from the presence of the Ancient of Days to establish the new creation. Now, to conclude, how should we react? What should our response be? Well, with apocalyptic literature, our reaction should be the reaction of those who received these visions. Firstly, humble yourself before Jesus. Daniel's reaction to the vision he received was certainly that. 
But look at John's reaction to the vision in Revelation. We've just read it, so I'll use that one. When I saw him, Jesus, I fell at his feet as though dead. And what causes you to fall at the feet of Jesus? It is his beauty, his grace, his love, but it's, the, it, it's also the understanding of who he is and what he has done. But what did Jesus do? He laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last. Fall at his feet. On your knees. But feel his touch. As he lays his hand on your shoulder, and you may notice as he does so, there are holes in his hand. If you are a Christian, his words to you are, Fear not, for you are safe, and you are secure forever. If you are not a Christian, and you have got that far with Christ, and you are falling on your knees before him, his words to you are, fear not. You need not fear any longer. Enter into my kingdom by looking to my cross. Humble yourself before Jesus. Let him touch you, encourage you, strengthen you, perhaps save you right now. And finally, heed his commission to go and make disciples of all nations. Go and tell people of Jesus because you understand what true power is. Now, I'm going to read these words from the end of Matthew that are all so familiar to us. We tend to miss the first four words and get to the commission. These words in Matthew that we call the Great Commission are more about the commissioner than the commissioned. Listen to what Jesus says just before he went back to heaven. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore. Therefore means because all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And then this wonderful, weighty promise when you know all the stuff about the Son of Man in the Bible, behold, I am with you always. It's a it's a promise that's not, a, it's not something you write on a tea towel or a picture on your bathroom wall. It's, I am with you always. Until the end of the age. At the end of the age, we haven't got time to look at this. There's a, a glorious text that I don't quite yet understand in the Bible when Jesus hands the kingdom back to his Father. And he says, it's done, it's all done. This commission in Matthew 28 to go and make disciples flows from all authority in heaven and earth being given to Jesus. These are the last words of Jesus to his disciples on earth 
And having said these things, all authority is given to me. Go and make disciples. Having said these things, Jesus ascended into heaven. And what happened then? Well, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Please enter into his kingdom if you have not yet done so. And if you have, well, that's a wonderful, wonderful thing. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this marvelous, marvelous promise in Daniel 7 and what it means and how it has worked out through all of human history. Lord, it's not easy perhaps to understand, but we pray that something of the truths of the width and the depth and the breadth of who Jesus is will have caught our minds and hearts tonight. But our primary concern, Lord, is for anyone who is at the gates of the kingdom of heaven, the gates of this eternal kingdom. Help them, Lord, tonight to go through that gate and to enter in. And that is an invitation and a conviction that only you in the power of your Spirit can bear upon a soul. But we ask for it. We plead for it because it matters more than anything on the earth. Thank you that we can gather now around the Lord's table as we reflect on how the Son of Man was nailed to the cross that we might be forgiven. Prepare our hearts as we sing and ready us to gather around this table of the Lord and reflect rightly on his sacrifice for us. For his sake and in his name we pray. Amen.